We've just finished the arrest of Jesus in the garden. We finished the bit about the certain young man who was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked, verses 51 and 52. That's sort of Mark's signature. It's only found in Mark, interesting little snippet that is unique to Mark. Verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We had heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Hmm. So they're having a problem here. We've got a nighttime trial going on in the high priest's house. Guards are outside. Peter, who had followed along at a distance, kind of slinks into the courtyard there and sits down and warms himself by the fire with the guards. Meanwhile, inside, they're trying to garner testimony against Jesus. They have had different people giving testimony. Unfortunately, it's conflicting one with another. None of it's sticking. And even one of the charges, which is documented elsewhere in the Gospels, where they say that they heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Even they did not agree in in their reports of it. So apparently there was some trouble. They had some real problems with the evidence against Jesus. They were having trouble making it stick. Okay? That's the status as of right now. But, verse 59. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and pick it up at verse 59. But even with on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then, verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus have you no answer what is it that they testify against you but he was silent and did not answer well I'm not surprised he didn't answer I mean none of the testimony was sticking they were disagreeing with each other in their evidences against him why should he answer The high priest is trying to get him to incriminate himself. Trying to get him to speak something and incriminate himself. But he was silent and did not answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one. And the Greek there is Christos. The Greek word for Messiah. Are you the Christ? The Hebrew word used would have been Mashiach. Messiah, anointed one, 
the son of the blessed one. That's a little interesting. Verse 61 here uses son of the blessed one, which is essentially how it, it translates fairly well straight out, of, straight out of the Greek here. Pretty much the same. Hmm. So he's asking him, are you the Messiah? That's what he asks him. What's Jesus' answer? Verse 62. Jesus said, I am. Just like that. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is one of those apocalyptic images of the coming of the Son of Man. It's a reference to uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and Psalm 110 verse 1. Hmm. Now look at what the high priest's response is. Verse 63. Those references to the Messiah? Mm, that's references, the uh, citation, this quote here. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven is a reference to Daniel 7.13 combined with the thought of Psalm 110 verse 1. Neither of those are technically messianic passages Although, well, Daniel has strong apocalyptic overtones for the end of time, and that's generally connected with the messianism in Judas' thought. And, of course, Psalm 110, verse 1, wouldn't be influenced by that at all. Let's just take a moment to look at uh, those. Let's, let's first look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool seated at the right hand of the power. All right? That's 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, that's the Lord, and it's in all caps, so it's actually in Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, enemy, your enemies your footstool. That's an allusion to seated at the right hand of the power. Daniel 7.13 reads as I watched in the night visions I saw one like a human being coming with clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him so the one the, uh, the one like a human being and technically that's um in Aramaic, one like the Son of Man. Human being, Son of Man, is often... Son of Man has both the general definition of a human and a specific definition within apocalyptic literature as the anointed human, the special human, the one that's particularly chosen by God. And here we see this citation placed on Jesus' lips you will see the Son of Man, uh, one like a human being, seated at the right hand of the power. That's pulled from Psalm 110, verse 1. And coming with the clouds 
of heaven, coming with the clouds of heaven. It's an apocalyptic image, clouds of heaven, the mysteries of God's presence is usually shrouded in clouds, and, and so the imagery is strongly apocalyptic in character. High priest response to that, we're going to go back to the rest of the, to the earlier part in a second. High priest response to that is to tear his clothes. Then the high priest tore his clothes. Why? I mean, that's what they did in, when they were grieving, wasn't it? When they were grieving, when they have heard blasphemy, that's what they that's what it says in verse 64. Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Well, the question was, are you the Messiah? And his answer is, I am. And then he gives this citation which pulls in an apocalyptic image type way this vague reference to the Son of Man being seated at the right hand of the power, i.e. God, coming in mysterious clouds and apocalyptic image for the coming of essentially God's anointed one. And it's placed in Jesus' lips right in the, after his response, I am, you will see this, uh, and you will see the Son of Man. Yes, I am, and you're going to see the, the bringing to fruition of God's plan. Claiming to be the Messiah was not an act of blasphemy. Not at all. That's the problem here. It's not just that Jesus answers the question, are you the Messiah? There were plenty of messianic pretenders throughout the history of the Jewish people in over a period of about 150 years here. Jesus wasn't the first. There would be one, a fellow by the name of Bar Kokhba, who would follow him much later, before the destruction in 70 AD. So I mean, there, there are examples of messianic pretenders. That's not an act of blasphemy. Nor is this utilization of Daniel in, first, in, in, in Psalm 110, verse 1, neither is that utilization blasphemous. Yeah, it's rather impressive to claim that you've got the Son of Man, the messianic character of the anointed one, the Mashiach, seated at the right hand of the power. Wow, you're talking about a really high position for this anointed one, but they would give the Messiah a high position of authority too. So, And coming in clouds of glory, well, I mean, that's just what you do when you're anointed and you're coming from God. So that's not blasphemous. Where's the blasphemy here? In the mind of the high priest? Could be in the mind of the high priest. Or it could be in something that's specific that Jesus said. In Greek, verse 62, Jesus' answer begins with where he says in English, I am. The words in Greek are ego eimi. Literally, I am or I be or I is. Eimi is the to be verb. How would they say I am in Hebrew? Aramaic or Hebrew if they didn't use the Yahweh. They would say Yahweh. Or they would say, you have said so, or yes. 
or correct. There are lots of ways to say it without saying Yahweh. Well, I would think that would be the blasphemy in, the, in his eyes. By using the name of God. Mm -hmm. so, I, don't, uh, so basically now we don't really know what he said. According to this, he said, I am. And if that was spoken in Hebrew or Aramaic, as you would expect, and in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's the same thing at this point. At that, at that level, for those two words, it's the same thing. If he, had, if he answered it literally as it's written here, translated back into Hebrew, the only way to say I am is Yahweh. To say yes, you can say yes. There's a different way to say that. You can say so you have said it is so. You can do it as it's done in Matthew, as we'll see in a moment, which is different and avoids the I am. That's interesting, by the way. How, how would he say I am not? No. <laughs> No, you would have to say, no, Yahweh. Yahweh no, all you would have to say is no. No, but if he said, I am or, not, then he would say that, but he would say literally, nay, Yahweh. No, I am not. Or no, I, no, I am. That still would be blasphemous because you're using the name. You're speaking the name. You're violating one of the Ten Commandments to begin with, and you're articulating the name. Now, it becomes most especially blasphemy in this case because in response to the high priest's question, he's, used, he's saying Yahweh, which sounds like he's saying, that's me, not just the Messiah, but God. It's implied. In their way of thinking and doing things, to say literally simply, I am, is a taboo. I am going home. You would not say it that way. You would use the phrasing in Hebrew that would not result in Yahweh being together. You would use a phrasing that would sound in translation into English something like going home am I you'd put the pronomial suffix on the end so it would be them I so yes and, and you say the Greek translates ego amy literally I am but it uses the literal to be verb. Ego me. I am. And whenever and when you read in the Old Testament translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Exodus, when God is asked by Moses what his name is, and he says, I am that I am, he uses the phrase ego me for his name there which is another interesting little aside now what it says in the Greek is less material to what he would have actually said would Jesus actually have said Yahweh might have if he was trying to get a conviction <laughs> you know, Look, it's like flipping a bird or something. <laughs> yes, there are things that we could say 
that are taboo for us to say in English today. We just don't say it. I mean, GD is a good example of that. You might articulate a sentence in which it doesn't come out GD, but you know, yeah. but but you <laughs> but it, but you have to articulate it just that way. going to do it but <laughs> you know what I mean the same thing is here to articulate the name of Yahweh was considered one of the worst things you could do unless you were the high priest in the temple once a year before the mercy seat and then you whisper it otherwise you said Adonai you don't say Yahweh you see it written Yahweh you don't say Yahweh you pronounce Adonai that's why they erased off the 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 the, ver, the vowel marks for Yahweh and put in the vowel marks for Adonai underneath the consonants for Yahweh. It's to tell you to pronounce Adonai. That's how we got the name Jehovah, by the way. So, it seems possible and it even more possible given how Matthew deals with this, which we'll go to in a moment. It seems possible that what Jesus did here is intentionally say Yahweh to the high priest in response to the priest's question, both as a literal response to the question and as a provocative response to become guilty of blasphemy well, by equating himself. The only thing that would account for their reaction. Thank you. It actually flows from the response. As we will see in Matthew's version, there's a disconnect. Their response is way out of line from what it is that he, he's depicted as actually saying. Mark, the earlier version, actually maintains the provocativeness. Not only is he saying God's name, no, no, number one. No, no, number two, he is also affirming I am the Messiah and this Messiah is extraordinarily close to Yahweh. So close that I can proclaim and speak with his authority seated at his right hand. So he's essentially equating himself with the power and the authority of Yahweh. Well, either that or he's just trying to take them off. Well, that's how he takes them off. Using the words. As, yes. as the subject of the verb. You know, they have this is an example of the difficulty we have probing back through the layers. To us, this doesn't look like a big thing. You go back to the Greek and it doesn't read like a big thing unless you realize what the meaning of God's name is, which is literally I am. Mm -hmm. And to have said that, when there were plenty of other ways to say that very phrase, in Hebrew that avoids speaking of the sounds that sound like God's name. All right, so that's that's kind of what we're faced with and trying to re trying to uncover what actually happened, it seems most likely that's exactly what he did. The charges weren't sticking. He knew they needed to stick cuz he knew he was going to have to die. That was what was going to happen. To ensure that it happens, he does the one thing that makes sure that it does happen. 
my little notes down here say that he asked that question in hopes that Jesus would affirm it so that he that way be, so that he would be charged with blasphemy and or open himself up to yeah blasphemy. and in some ways Jesus already kind of in his silence was begging him to ask the question yeah <laughs> at least that's how I read it let's finish out the paragraph and then we'll take a look at the parallel in Matthew why do, we kneel why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. Let's look at the parallel in Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest in whose house the scribes and the elders had gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? Let's just pause for a moment. Thus far, all Matthew has done is clean it up. Tighten up the language a little bit. It flows a little better in Matthew. Have you no answer? What is it that testify against you? Verse 63. But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, so the question's a little more expanded here. Not as brief as it is in Mark. The Son of God is tacked on here, not just the Messiah. That's interesting. That's extremely interesting. Son of Sonship, Son of Godship, is a concept that um, is not closely linked with messianic expectation other than in a general sense. But by Matthew's time, it has become a very strong connection, particularly in this community, a very strong connection to Messiahship. But during Jesus' day, it was more general. More general. I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. So here, Jesus' answer avoids the saying in Greek, ego eimi, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. I am. You have said so. Notice, he doesn't stop here. Matthew continues. But I tell you, 
From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Essentially the same thing that Mark cites. Hmm. This apocalyptic expectation is an apocalyptic image. Now, he's, Matthew's changed the changed what Jesus says. I mean, the answer is essentially the same. Yep, that's me. But instead, it's, you have said so, which avoids Yahweh. And still, verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said he has blasphemed. Why do we need witnesses? No, he hasn't. Not literally, not even here. Not even in his answer, you have said so. Does he blaspheme? He doesn't utilize God's name. And identifying yourself as the Messiah is not blasphemy. And this citation, this apocalyptic image that Jesus is uh, uh, reported as speaking, doesn't in any way articulate any kind of blasphemy. This is weird. Matthew has retained the charge of blasphemy, but for some reason has removed the actual incidence of it. Why? Who was Matthew? He can't bring himself to have Jesus blaspheme that way. It's okay to have Jesus charge as blasphemy, but it's a little bit scandalous to have the Son of God engaging in blasphemy. Could be one answer. Why would that be? Matthew's, Matthew's elevation of Jesus into a higher degree of holiness than Mark's wants to separate Jesus from the ability of having actually done it but still having charged with it. So his... It made it to John's level yet. No, it hasn't even gotten close yet. He's still got to go through Luke, which is another problem altogether. Now, yeah, here's another possible interpretation, which is in accord with everything we know from Matthew. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience, for whom hearing that would be like hearing about somebody in church say the GD. Oh, oh, you mean it? Yeah, of Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the one who must not be named. That's it. Yeah, you just just don't. He's writing in a community and to a community of Jewish Christians who, for whom, saying Yahweh would be extraordinarily offensive. Now he's writing in Greek. But to these Jewish Christians whose second, if not first, tongue is Greek, they know that ego eimi is the same thing as ave. Because they've read it from the Old Testament, from the Septuagint in Greek, that when God is asked what his name is in Exodus, his answer is ego eimi. I am. So they've made the connection. And so the argument is Matthew has decided to clean it a little bit for the ears and eyes of a Jewish Christian community that is offended by the apparent act of blasphemy by saying Yahweh. At this point in time, Christianity hasn't separate, Jewish Christianity hasn't separated itself enough from Judaism that for them, articulating the divine name is still a problem. If I remember right, the Jewish 
religion still to this day cannot write the word God. You cannot. Well, there are Jews today who will leave out the O and write G space D. And it's sort of an echo of that idea. But Jews to this day, uh, Orthodox Jews, will not say Yahweh. They will say Adonai. I when I was trained to read and write Hebrew, uh -huh. I was trained to, when I saw Ad uh, Yahweh written, I was trained not to read out loud Yahweh, but to read out loud Adonai. And that's out of respect for the tradition and for the ears of those Orthodox and conservative Jews who would be highly offended by it. Do not go up to the great, to the, to the wailing wall in Jerusalem and yell, Yahweh! Please don't. Please don't. I wouldn't do that. Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> As that could, in theory, start a riot. Although uh -huh. Nye is acceptable when you intend Yahweh. And that's kind of what you have here. A Jewish Christian community that still ha that has not differentiated itself enough from Judaism to no longer be offended by the articulation of the divine name is offended by it, and so this author has decided to ease it for them by cleaning it a little bit with this phrasing, "You have said so." Mark doesn't seem to care. First of all, he's writing to a mostly Gentile community. Even though he himself is probably a Jew, and his source was Jewish, they told the story as it happened. He maintains the blasphemous words utilization. Matthew cleans it. I think there's a little bit of that elevation going on too, but I think it's more the sensitivity of the ears and eyes who are receiving this than anything else in this particular case. And the fact that he maintains the charge of blasphemy here, and it's obvious to them that it's a valid charge, tells me that even the people who heard this or read this knew what was going on. What, what do you think is the import of prophesy? The, uh, it's expanded in Mark. Doesn't seem, or in Matthew, mm -hmm. doesn't really seem to be the the definition. Of prophecy. Prophesy to yeah. us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? But, I mean, it's it's more like you know fortune telling here, but being. It reads really weird, doesn't it? And it's just one word in Mark. Uh -huh. Yeah. What does it say in Mark? That Mark is just one word in Matthew. It's prophesied to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? Uh, uh, you know, you should be able to, yeah. to see in your mind who is that's beating you up. You know? Well, in verse 65, they blindfolded him. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. You know, they're, it's like in Mark, they blindfolded him, and then they're striking him and telling him, prophesy. I.e., If you're so powerful, if you, really are the, if you really are the Messiah, if you are who you say you are, then you need to tell us, who just hit you? Now, looking at, this is interesting, looking at Matthew. No blindfold. No blindfold. They spat on in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, who is it that struck you? Which kind of, which kind of leaves you wondering, why would Matthew leave out the blindfolding? 
is Matthew just assuming that it's just that Jesus isn't going to know the identity of some of these people who are hitting him and they're asking him to identify me as who is striking you? I don't know. It's really I mean, weird. In, in, in Jewish prophecy thing, is prophecy is not it's not that it's not fortune telling, you know, or, or not seeing the, you know, I mean, it's it's telling, it's not even telling future. It's sort of it's sort of condemning and judging and all that stuff. You know, it's it's a very unusual the only extent of future foretelling in prophecy well, is saying what is immediately that, getting sure. ready to happen. Like, tomorrow, if you keep doing this, King, you're going to get sacked. Well, yeah, because the army's right there. <laughs> uh, I mean, a prophet, a Jewish prophet, will not stand up and blindfold himself and then, you know, start uh, to... That's the amazing Kreskin. Or, you know, <laughs> someone in our modern understanding, that really fits. It is kind of weird. It may, it may echo a little bit of... It, it, Matthew's use may echo a little bit of Greek influence. Mark's... It's, it's kind of strange. Blindfolded and told to prophesy almost makes it sound like they're slapping him and saying, prophesy not to identify who it is that's hitting him in Mark, but rather go ahead and preach to us. Yeah. If you're so good. If you are truly the Messiah. Prove it. Prove it. Matthew has taken the command to prophesy and applied it to whoever it is that's hitting him. But, but they're not blindfolded in Matthew, which is really weird. All right, let's take a look at Luke and how Luke deals with this. Actually, no. Let's go back to Matthew. I mean, back to Mark. And there's a reason, and you'll see when we go to Luke. So go back to Mark. In verse 66 of Mark 14. While Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Gateway. Uh, then the cock Crowed. And the servant girl on seeing him began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse. And he swore an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter's denial. When confronted by a servant girl, he denies it. When confronted by those who have gathered around, he denies it. He denies it three times. After the first time he denies it, the cock crows. After the third time he denies it, the cock crows again. 
and it fulfills what Jesus said in Mark, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Let's look at Matthew's parallel before we deal with any details at all. So go to Matthew 26, beginning at 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When, then, when he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene, literally. Again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them. For your accent betrays you. I mean, we be southern Jews and you sound like a Yankee. Then he began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you shall deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Essentially the same story, essentially articulated the same way, same word order sequence, same word choice in many places with a couple of exceptions. A little, little smaller role for the cock. Yeah. Mr. Rooster only crows once in Matthew, twice in Mark. That's interesting. He still denies him three times. That stays the same. The number of times we get to hear the rooster talk is once in Matthew, twice in Mark. Mark's a little more convoluted. Also, in Matthew, it's the same servant girl. I mean, in Mark, it's the same servant girl. In Matthew, it's two different servant girls. Hmm. I mean, those details are more minor. It's this cock crowing business that's interesting. Matthew cleans it up. It's part and parcel of his cleaning the story up. He's taken an awkward sequence and simplified it to get the basic point across. And earlier on in Matthew, Jesus does tell him, you know, once the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. You know, by the time it's getting ready for the sun to come up, you'll have denied me three times. Wow. After having said, I'll never deny you. Well, and in Mark, it's a little more convoluted. You got two, two uh, crowings of the, of the rooster. <laughs> you think that first time would have gotten Peter's attention? Yeah. Oops, yeah. I thought it was. Do I do it two more times and get the third? I mean, get, 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 do it two more times and get the second cock's crying? Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. But his life would have been in jeopardy had he acknowledged, correct? Oh, yeah, considering that he had been there in the garden and was probably the one who had drawn the sword and whacked off an ear. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of hard to say. You know, I've, I've seen writers who make the point that the authorities did not seem to be particularly interested in Jesus' followers at this time. Not yet. The... Uh, 
except and certainly these these people who apparently paid Peter pretty carefully or pretty well could have gone to the authorities and mm -hmm. taken care of it. They didn't do it, you know. or at least we don't see them doing it. He may have been, his reason for, for denying it is obviously fear. And of course, if he is the one who did the chopping, <laughs> then he would have a reason to be somewhat uh, you know, afraid if he's chopped off the high priest's servant's ear, the male one, Malchus, we find out elsewhere. So, I mean, there's all that, all those factors are involved still. It's a fascinating story. It comes after the trial, maybe during the trial. Kind of hard to say for sure. But it happens essentially during or after the trial. If you go to the site, you'll notice that Caiaphas' house is built on the hillside. And the courtyard would have been kind of to the side and down from the house, which would have been uh, leveled. And uh, so it, it kind of is described here beautifully, actually, in Matthew. Um, Sitting outside in the courtyard, walking down, Mark does the same kind of thing, moving to the various structures, the gateway, the porch. It, it, it describes it quite well, quite well. Now there's a reason why I wanted to read these two all the way through before going to Luke. It's because Luke's very different. Now, he contains just about everything. But <laughs> as before, he's changed the sequence of bits somewhat. So let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 22. Now, it's been a short, it was a shorter arrest scene. Much shorter. He's just finished with this philosophical thing to those who are arresting him. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Verse 54, then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Oh, now we have a man. Mm -hmm. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Man, now, now Peter's from the 1960s. Man, yeah. man. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord, verse 61. Oh, wow. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Let's see a split screen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well... The description of it does not have Jesus in trial. In fact, Jesus is not in trial yet. It hasn't started yet in Luke. Instead, it's there in the courtyard waiting to take Jesus in for trial, and Jesus is there. Oh, I see. And at least an hour has passed. Uh-huh. An hour later. An hour later, well, yeah, because it's getting closer to, to when the cock would crow. 
There is only one crowing of the cock. He does deny Jesus three times. He is asked by a servant girl and by two other men, men apparently, unless he's speaking in 1960s Mayan kind of bit. He's, he's identified because he's a Galilean, i.e. they can tell by his accent, although it's not quite said like it is in Matthew so clearly. And Jesus is right there. Now, as it's usually depicted, I saw one movie. You can look through a window into the high priest's house, and he looks out the window at Peter. No! That's conflating the three together. Luke, on his own, has Jesus sitting there, waiting. And Peter's there, too. And he denies Jesus three times right there, and it says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So now, is it, is it here, is it in this one? This is the one where he, he Peter, hacks off the ear, right? Or is that in John? John, actually, it's Peter. It identifies who did it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just tell us it happened. Luke tells us he healed the ear. So here you have all the people who arrested Jesus waiting to go in, and Peter's hanging around on the fringes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Getting identified. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> I won't notice you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, in my notes, it says that the men holding Jesus had already brought him into the courtyard to beat him. So that sounded like they're thinking that he had already been tried. But the trial hasn't happened yet. I know. It's getting so ready it's, to happen. Your commentary notes are not sure. They're conflating with Matthew and Mark, just as everybody else does. Okay. Luke doesn't depict that. Luke depicts them as taking him to the high priest's house. They're waiting in the courtyard to be let in, apparently. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there for a while waiting around the fire, trying to warm themselves, mm-hmm. and all this business is going on with Peter trying to say, I'm not, it's not, it's not me. And then finally you hear the rooster crow, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter. I mean, it's just a very powerful scene, but different, amazingly different. Yeah, then it goes on Matthew to say and Mark. the trial happens during the day. Mm-hmm. And then they start beating Yeah. They were waiting for the priest to wake up, looks like. Verse 63. Now, in Matthew and Luke, the, the trial takes place at night, which is a direct violation of Hebraic yeah. rules. <coughs> when you can do this. Now, it's not any better here. It's still a violation of the law. It's not supposed to happen in the high priest's house. But nevertheless, uh, it doesn't happen in the middle of the night. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Here, Luke takes the blindfold and leaves it on and adds Matthew's question. Who is it that struck you? More of that almost Greek-like attitude of, of mysticism, you know, tell us, be the amazing Kreskin, and tell us who it is that beat you. They kept heaping many other insults on him. That happens at the end of the trial in Mark and Matthew. It hasn't ha- trial hasn't happened yet in Luke. When day came, verse 66, when day came, 
The assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. This is interesting. This is a very different thus far. Jesus carries on a conversation with them. Hey, if I tell you, you're not going to believe it. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The same thing Mark says. It's almost the same thing, except it's taken out of this... Um, um, apocalyptic phrasing and put into narrative response again in Jesus' lips but out of an apocalyptic site almost it's, it's essentially removed from its Daniel context and removed from its first the Psalm 110 con- context and put in a narrative phrasing in Jesus' lips and with all this extra stuff if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I question, Jesus, you're the one being questioned. It's like you're trying to question the prosecuting attorney now. Mm-hmm. And if I question you, you will not answer. For from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? Notice, not Messiah this time, just Son of God. And he said to them, You say that I am. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, he said he did it. Huh? He did, he did it again. Uh huh. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. But they don't use the, the, the charge blasphemy. It's not there. I don't see it in Luke at that point. Let's look. Just one second. 22 verse, verse 70. Uh, yeah, verse 70. 22 verse 70. Long chapter. 22 verse 70. Humeus ego eimi. Uh-huh. He said, you, you say, or you have said that I am he, not writing to a Jewish Christian audience, not being bothered, he himself being a Gentile, a Syrian, not being bothered by using the name of the divinity and in, in the personal name of the divine one. It doesn't seem, it doesn't, it doesn't cross his mind to not say, I am, ego eimi. So he uses what Mark contains, doesn't change it, but he also drops the blasphemy charge. He said, and it's not connected to Messiah, but to Son of God. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Very different. And yet, very similar. Mm-hmm. He's using Mark as his source. 
He swapped the sequence of events, putting this denial by Peter up front, and, and before the trial, and beating before the trial, followed by Jesus' trial before the high priests. And they ask him about being the Messiah, and he essentially answers them, you're not going to understand it even if I try to answer. You're not going to believe it or really understand <coughs> if I answer the question. And so they ask him a different one. Are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Not quite as abrupt, I am, but still utilizing that same double, that, those, that, those two words, which for Jews is a no-no. So the whole story is still there. Oh, the whole story is absolutely there and substantially, in a sense, substantially the same. Yeah. But Luke doing what Luke likes to do has reordered the sequence from Mark, cleaned up the verbiage and the structure, given Jesus more speaking lines, and taken away the Jewishness of the situation and the Jewish charge of blasphemy. He's writing to a Gentile audience for whom that idea is not very palatable or comprehensible. And for whom this idea of saying I am, it's kind of hard to connect it with the business of blasphemy. Fascinating. Why do you, why do you think he, well, two questions. Uh, he, he sets the story daylight. Yeah. And is it also not possible to read it that somehow or other they, the assembly and or the council or in fact the Sanhedrin, you know, that they, they, they doesn't this does not say it was at Caiaphas' house anymore. Oh no, it doesn't. I just noticed that as we read it. Yeah. It's one of those things that you hit when you, you've read it through a bunch of times, you didn't see it before. Which would which would, mm -hmm. which would make it more of a regular legal. thing. It would make it legal. Although, to this particular audience, they shouldn't give a hoot. They shouldn't give a hoot. Yeah. Matthew and Mark have an illegal trial at night at the Caiaphas' house. Well, Luke says at the beginning they went to the high priest's house. Yeah, to wait. And then, yeah. it seems to imply, in verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and the scribes, same group that was in Mark and Matthew, gathered together and they brought him to their council. They led him away. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. They took him someplace else. Well, maybe after... That's implied. Well, it says right here, they led him away. In which translation? Uh, RSV. That's the RSV? Yeah. In mm -hmm. RSV doesn't say that. It simply says... And they brought him to their council. They brought him to their it council. It kind of implies a different place. Yeah, it does. It implies, unless you're allowing Matthew and Mark to influence you, it, it, it implies that Luke has off-cited the trial from Caiaphas' house to the meeting place of the Sanhedrin, which wasn't far away. But if they were waiting for Caiaphas to get up and head over there for trial, 
It makes sense they'd wait there. Yeah, it, that's how it. That's that's kind of how it reads in Greek, the same way. Brought him away. To their council. So it does seem Luke has fixed something that is a violation of Jewish rules, a nighttime trial not held at the Sanhedrin or at the council, which is the same thing, and he's fixed that. But for why? For people who don't care, who wouldn't know that there was a violation of the rules to begin with. Maybe he cared. But why would he do that? I mean, he may have went in there and read. Why would he want to protect? And said, Wait a minute, guys. It couldn't have been then because that would have been a violation of their rules. But it sounds like he's trying to protect the Sanhedrin. Well, that's not in his character to do that. Yes. Could it be that he thought it would make more sense to the Greeks to? It would be like take. I, I don't know how what the Greek legal system was, but you do like, it in an official court place. Yeah, just like the Jews like would. Taking him to the judge's house uh -huh. and waiting until the judge woke up and then taking him to court. Right, which is how it's articulated yeah. here in, right. in essence. So maybe he thought they would understand that better. Maybe he did. It still reads a little weird. It also kind of sounds like he's trying to rehabilitate these Jewish leaders, and we know that wasn't that's not his yeah. intent. He could have been so. just trying to validate. If anybody would fix this, it would be Matthew, and he doesn't. That's what I was thinking. If anybody's going to try to fix this to make it jive with Jewish rules on when you could hold this, it ought to be Matthew. Because he was writing to the Jews. He was writing to Jewish Christians. But you also have to remember, he was writing to Jewish Christians who were really, 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 really pissed at their brother Jews. Yeah, they've been so, thrown so out of the Matthew city. Had no interest yeah. in rehabilitating the Jews. Thank no. you, none. Whereas Luke is has, to a degree at least, an interest to communicate Jewish things accurately, to to the extent that he can. And maybe he's decided that it makes more sense to have the trial in the daytime, or in the, in, at least in the morning, after sunup, with, in the place it ought to be, rather than at night <coughs> at Caiaphas's house. The problem- well, The could interpret that as a kangaroo court. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a kangaroo court anyway. But, but you're correct. It's even more suspicious when it's not held where it ought to be held. Yeah. And not at the time that it ought to be held. Which is interesting, after having him being arrested at night and Jesus' statement, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, this philosophical statement, you think, well, that's perfect then for the that's trial to be held. At, that's a Luke. For the, for the trial to be held at night would make perfect sense then. But it's not. It's held in the morning. And they, and they still can't get charges to stick, by the way, in Luke. And that, they still have that problem. Yeah. Well, I have another question. Maybe it's not time for it. All right, what? But why did he have them beat him up before the trial instead of after? You mean in, in Luke? Luke? Yeah, why did Luke have them, have them beat him beforehand? That would be like brutality. Yeah. Which doesn't do any good for the uh, for the for Gentile opinions of Jews either. 
It's a real problem, isn't it? And there, there are no other witnesses in Luke's account. No. There's business about, no. I'm going to tear down the temple. No, that's completely yeah. injected. That's not there. Yeah. In Luke, it's all, all just they. They. It's not, it's not articulated specifically. The evil they. The evil they. Just the scribes, the chief priests, and the scribes together, and the elders of the people in assembly. The men who were holding him. That's the one who's doing it. Yeah, yeah, even before the assembly gathered. Right. That event which occurs in Mark and Matthew after it, but within the assembly, is here placed prior to the assembly Mm -hmm. by other people, not members of it. That's an interesting shift, too. It shifts from the people who who were trying him and the guards who were right there to the people who arrested him to begin with, essentially. Now, the men who were holding Jesus. Yeah. So was it just something for them to do while they were waiting? Maybe they were bored. I don't know. <laughs> kind of, you know, maybe, maybe it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, in in Mark, it's much shorter. I mean, they're all, all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some... And that's members of the of the council. Some began to spit on him and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. Whereas in Luke, it's those who were holding him doing that prior to the trial. The, the, the court, whatever it is, it seems to be a little more orderly. In uh-huh. It does, doesn't it? If you back up to the part where he's arrested, there came a crowd led by Judas. Right. And then the sword thing. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders. Sounds like they're there. Yeah. So they're there. Apparently. But they're listed then, as, but, but then they're not there. Then you get over to when they seized him, the big day. I guess that's everybody, the crowd and the chief priests and the, all of them. Uh-huh. It's a little confusing, <laughs> isn't it? It really is. Um, and they take him to the high priest's house. Mm-hmm. And then they wait. And then they beat on him. Uh-huh. And then everybody, the assembly of elders occurs elsewhere and then they go to it and they lead him away Luke in cleaning things up sometimes makes a bigger mess now uh, what's going to happen next will will be even more because Matthew and Luke contain the bit before Pilate I mean Matthew and Mark contain the bit before Pilate so does Luke but then Luke throws in a, a trial so-called trial before Herod Antipas <laughs> that's an interesting little additive so it's it's Luke is different from Matthew and Mark rather significantly different and yet you can see that Luke is using Mark as his principal source and adjust and totally free to adjust it when it fits better with what he thinks is a more reasonable articulation of the account. So Herod isn't in Matthew. No. So there's another 
Mark against Godspell. <laughs> Godspell claims to be, according to Matthew, but in truth, it's uh, heavily, heavily influenced by Luke. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.